Broadcasting from the Unshackled Studios in Melbourne, this is Wilms Front, brought to you by the Unshackled.net. Now here's Tim Wilms. Hello everyone and welcome to another Wilms Front featured interview show on this Sunday, the 25th of February, 2024, we are broadcasting live on the Wilmsfront YouTube channel, the Wilmsfront Odyssey channel, and the Wilmsfront Rumble channel. It is 9pm here in Melbourne, Victoria, which, uh, as most of you in the audience will be aware, sadly has become the home of anti-Australian activism and the demonisation of Australian history and the people who built it, as evidenced by the tearing down of those uh, Captain Cook monuments before Australia Day, uh, which uh, the culprits are still at large. Now, because Australia was built by white European people, namely uh, the first settlers, uh, the Anglo-Celtic uh, from the British Isles, every it's not just Australia, every nation that has a white European majority, regardless of whether it's a white population that is an indigenous or are settlers, is under attack from anti-whites who aim to erase the historical achievements of those white majority nations. I mean, just look at uh, Google Gemini, uh, what it's put out late, uh, lately. They also, uh, these anti-whites, discriminate against white people, attack white culture and traditions and eventually want to force whites to be a minority by supporting mass migration, making multiculturalism compulsory and outlawing all dissent. One organisation here which is fighting back is the British Australian community whose purpose is to represent the interests of and to promote the culture of Anglo-Australians. My guest tonight is the past president of the British Australian community, Dr. Frank Salter, who is a human behavioral biologist. His most seminal work on the matter is the book on genetic interests, family, ethnicity, humanity in the age of mass migration. His most recent book is Anglophobia, the Unrecognized Hatred, co-authored with Harry Richardson. Frank, welcome to Wilmsfront. Great to be here. And uh, you're a guest uh, who is uh, by popular demand. Uh, so we've, uh, all my regulars uh, are here eager and uh, a few of uh, a few of your, your other uh, followers from the, the British Australian community. Now, my first question is, the most commonly used phrase to describe modern vilification and discrimination against whites is anti-whiteism. That's the term that I use on my show. It's mainly used by a lot of the uh, United States-based white YouTubers. Why has British Australian community decided to use instead the term anglophobia? Uh, Tim, th th we agonised over this because anti-whiteism, that's a fine term. Uh, Anti-white, uh, races against white people, those are all accurate. But we're dealing with a more particular population. We're ethnically oriented. And of course, all ethnic groups have racial identity as well. I'm aware of that. But the, the term white is, is quite broad. It, it means all people 
um, derived from European populations. And um, Anglo, uh, Anglo countries are, yes, they are that, but, but they're more particular. They're of Anglo-Celtic origin, which is derived from the native peoples of the British Isles. So we've, we struggled over it because the, terms, the term you're suggesting is, a, is accurate. But, but we, we, we find the additional term of Anglophobia or anti-Anglo hatred, one could call it, um, particularly appropriate for Australia and Canada and New Zealand and the British Isles, because it applies to, to, uh, to them. Now, there's a, there's a pragmatic reason for this too. Um, people are not as motivated by race as they are by tribe. We are evolved to with a psychology that's that links in with tribal concerns, threats to the tribe. Now, what is a tribe? Well, a, tri a tribe is an ethnic group. One one could translate it that way. So, ethnicity is much closer to our evolved psychology, and therefore we think we're likely to have more success in mobilizing people and getting them concerned about threats to their ethnic families uh, using the rhetoric, the terminology of tribe rather than race. Race is a large, very large category, still valid, theoretically valid, but less motivating, we think. Because obviously Europe, it's made up of different white tribes or another term that's used is ethnic group there's obviously the uh, the the northern uh, germanic in scandinavia the Nord nordic countries and then over in eastern europe there's the slavic populations to, to, to just name a few off the off the top of my head uh, but is the reason you chose anglophobia is because well your organization's called the british australian community and the organization is representing who were the original settlers. Now, obviously, in the 19th century, there was a whole bunch of uh, migrants coming from the mainland continent. I mean, my surname, Wilms, is is German. Uh, the first uh, f uh, first Wilms came to Australia in the, the 19th century. Mm, yeah. No, no, it's, 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 again, valid, valid points. We, if you have a look at our writings and our videos, we talk about Anglophobia, hatred of British tribe peoples, but we also talk about anti-white rhetoric, anti-white defamation. So both are valid. It depends on the scale that one is, look, is, is focusing on. Um, the reality in the United States, I understand why, the, why they prefer the term whites, right? Because they've had such large... Uh, non-British immigration over so so many years. The Germans began arriving in the United States in the uh, 1700s, and then came the Irish in the 1840s, and went on from there. So, but in Australia, uh, and I and I think Anglo's make up around 25% of the of the American population. Germans are the single largest ethnic group in America mainly because a lot of Anglos just think of, them, of themselves as, as just American. But Australia and New Zealand and Canada are different or have been different. We've been 
predominantly Anglo-Celtic, predominantly British now, in our fairly recent um, uh, origins. Um, so we, we thought that was appropriate, even though even though we're aware of, of non-British non immigration as well from the 19th century on. Now, do you believe that mass migration to majority white countries is primarily an anti-white policy or is mass migration just a culmination of the ease of mass travel in these modern times because for centuries and millennia uh, humanity didn't have any means to travel other other than just by foot yes on both points both points are correct um, I see them as, as both as necessary conditions for the replacement level migration where we're seeing around the, Ang especially the Anglo world, but also with some European countries. Um, yes, that, that second reason you gave is true. We have tremendous techno uh, technologies now, industrial scale technologies for moving masses of people. That's one point. Second point, we have built society so attractive, like heaven on earth almost, compared to many hell holes around the world, that many, many people want to come to the West. Welfare, safe streets, schools where the children go and are safe, relatively uncorrupted officials and police. This is a, a, a wonderful thing in much of the world where you know, um, corruption is the norm. And of course, we have corruption too, but the level is much lower. So there's a tremendous pull factor, a tremendous market force. People want to come to our countries. And that which brings me to your first point, which is, is it um, due to anti-white activity? Well, indirectly and powerfully, it is because um, they, they dismantle our barriers. They dismantle our, our immigration selection procedures by which we maintained our identity over 200 years. So soon after, you know, by the, by the late 19th century, um, Australia was a wonderful place to come. People, you know, whether, and it wasn't just people rushing to mine gold, pan gold, and it wasn't just you know, uh, for the for the jobs, it was also for that for that way of life, that tremendous freedom, um, and access to the Western world. So there's a Western global economic network that moving to Australia or Canada or New Zealand or Britain or America gets you into. So your family is then able to move between those countries with relatively little, little friction. So that. But so that is the way in which this the politics of migration has become a matter of life and death, actually, for the Australian nation. Maybe not not so much life and death for individuals, because so far we haven't entered entered the stage of or a stage of mass violence um, in luckily in this country. Hopefully that will, will never come. But survival of national identity. Uh, is now under threat. 
as I mentioned before, I there obviously uh, the Anglo-Celtic British were the original settlers, and then a lot of mainland European people migrated here. But the the policy up until you would say the 70s and, and 80s, and we it's very clear why this policy changed during during that time. So originally the the immigration policy was assimilation. Like obviously, I mentioned my family, uh, uh, my ancestors came from Germany, but I speak fluent English with an Australian accent i'm fully assimilated australia is the the country that i uh, grew up in and and love being here but now we have multiculturalism and it some people say coincidentally or not coincidentally came in uh, when the white australia policy was uh, dismantled and immigrants came in from asia the subcontinent the the middle east over the over the last fifty years, up until the the present day, so now we have multiculturalism, which is it's promoted by both major parties and is also uh, legislated in law. I remember uh, when I attended uh, Blair Cottrell's uh, appeal against uh, his uh, racial and religious tolerance uh, conviction for that mock uh, beheading at the Bendigo outside the Bendigo Council. I, the, it, what I learned from sitting in that courtroom was that uh, the reason for this act is because we need to enshrine multicultural harmony in law. Yes, well, they'd, they'd need to, wouldn't they? Because it certainly won't come from the multicultural society. Multiculturalism um, is not just correlated in time with um, a liberal immigration policy or a, 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 an open, in effect, an open doors or non-discriminatory immigration policy. It's, it's part and parcel of it, of, of, the, of the two. I'm interested, um, I've taken interest recently in a, in a speech given by Prime Minister Bob Hawke, uh, 26th of January, uh, 1988. So it's the second bicentennial. So it's the bicentennial of the first fleet coming. And he was speaking at Sydney Harbour to a large audience. The tall ships were had or were coming in through the heads. And he gave a, a very important speech that I, I suspect his predecessor, Malcolm Fraser, uh, didn't have the wit to give. But Hawke was something of a scholar. Hawke was a Rhodes Scholar, in fact, uh, Oxford University graduate, and able to put ideas together in a coherent manner. And he explained what multiculturalism meant in concrete terms. And it was, it's so shocking to read that speech. It, 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 the ABC refers to it as the no ethnic hierarchies speech. And in that speech, Hawke said, in Australia, what does it mean to be an Australian? What does it mean? What is Australian identity? And he disparaged the old British idea that we are an outpost of Britain and Europe. Uh, you know, that, that, that original idea. He said, no, 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 we are, um, 
Anyone who loves Australia is an Australian. The man was a revolutionary. That is an extraordinary thing to say. Anyone who loves Australia is an Australian. So someone watching his TV in outer Mongolia or in Congo, for example, who watches, who watches um, you know, the flying doctor and falls in love with the Australian way of life or the Australian scenery or, the, or whatever, is an Australian. Hawk went on. Hawk went on. Um, and he explained that Australian identity, Australian national identity was coming more and more to be constituted by diversity. So diversity was Australia. So Australia, in other words, Australia no longer had any particular national identity, like from one or a, a cluster of ethnic groups. No, it, it was diversity itself. This is doctrinaire, radical political multiculturalism okay so this is it was extremely dangerous and I was almost 30 years old at the time I, I don't remember him giving the speech I, it, it had no impact on me I think I needed someone to in you know theoretically theoretically sound to watch the speech and and give a commentary on it but that that didn't happen it sort of went under the radar and uh, to my horror, about a month ago, um, ex-Prime Minister John Howard was being interviewed and he referred to Hawke's 1988 speech. And he said, oh, yeah, that's all true. That's all true. And then moved on and discussed something else. So one of our most famous conservative prime ministers and long, long serving one and one responsible for massive replacement level non-white immigration, John Howard, uh, agrees with this Bolshevik notion. Now, if one steps back and and views these and views this extraordinary radical position from a historical perspective, what Hawke was signifying was this: that the Commonwealth of Australia, the state apparatus, ha has switched its loyalty from the people who created it, namely Anglo-Australia and all those who've assimilated into it. I'll, for short, I call it Anglo-Celtic Australia. The Commonwealth is no longer loyal to that. It's loyal to minorities. Because he said, there is no, in effect, there is no ethnic hierarchy in Australia. Anyone who loves Australia is Australian. Um, someone who arrives someone who arrived yesterday on, on, on a boat or a jumbo jet and got his citizenship papers was just as good, just as much an Australian as someone whose family had been here for five or six or seven generations. Now, that's simply a lie. I say lie, deliberate untruth, because Hawke was too clever not to know that it was a lie. Malcolm Fraser maybe believed it, but Hawke, Hawke knew what he was, what he was doing which takes me, and I'll finish this long rant, um, which takes me to the work of David Brown, political scientist who wrote a, year, a book in the year 2000 on this subject. And he, he, was he was discussing what multiculturalism actually means in political terms. And part of his definition was multiculturalism is where the state apparatus, in Australia's case, it's the Commonwealth, 
the Commonwealth, which is responsible for ethnic affairs, immigration, multiculturalism, that, that sort of thing. Um, no longer licenses the founding nation, the nation that created it. He used the word licensing, in other words, permission to be yourself, permission to, to identify as you wish, permission to defend one's interests, one's group interests. And the Commonwealth, from 1901, from its first piece of legislation in 1901, which was the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, that was the White Australia policy, which followed right through to about 1970. That, and, and before that, the six independent colonies had something similar going back to the gold rushes, right? When we were shocked, the colonies were shocked by the influx of, of Chinese, fine, hardworking people, just not Australians. And, and the shift in identity was, was too much. So they decided, no, we, we must restrict if we're going to remain who we are in this far-flung part of the world. We're not, we're not in Europe anymore. We have to think about these things because we're living side by side with large populations who are not Christian not and not European racially and or, or ethnically or historically. So Australia was one of those secular societies that had to think about these things if it was going to survive in terms of identity survival. So um, this is the reality of multiculturalism, Brown, Professor Brown points out, points out that the common, where, the, where the state apparatus transfers its loyalty from the people, from the nation to minorities. It's as stark as that. So we, and here's the thing, from my point of view, it's clear that the uh, Commonwealth was created as an instrument of the Anglo-Celtic nation, the historic Australian nation. It's the creation and openly, explicitly, not, not some subterfuge, sort of modern prime minister sort of skulking around doing things under the, you know, under the, under the covers. It was the famous speech, for example, by Sir Henry Parks, the father of Federation, never lived to see it, but he chaired the, um, the first constitutional convention in uh, Melbourne, I think, in 1890. And he gave this famous speech. He said, the golden thread, sorry, the crimson, the crimson thread of kinship runs through us all. And, and representative after representative of the six states said, yes, yes, the crimson thread runs through us all. It was openly declared, proudly declared, we will be an outpost of European civilization, and in particular of Britain, but they saw Britain as, as in a concentric circle of Western civilization. So we created the Commonwealth to serve our interests. The first piece of legislation was the White Australia policy, which I, I think is actually a misleading title. It's, it's an assimilationist policy inspired by the great English philosopher, John Stuart Mill in the 1860s. So this went back to philosophy, it went back to the uh, primitive social sciences of the time, which turned out to be roughly right too, because Mill put forward a sociological reason for, for Mill, Mill argued immigration 
of any scale, if it's one or two people, no, but if it's of any scale, it must be assimilable because what you want to avoid is, is diversity. Ethno-religious diversity is poison, in effect, he said. Now, in some ways, he exaggerated it. He said, if you overcome the language problem, basically you've solved the problem. Well, we know that's not true. Modern studies prove his thesis in a broader way because there are all sorts of ethnic markers from language then to, then to accent. Even if you learn the language, most people keep some accent. Their children don't. Their children assimilate that way. Then there's a, a racial markers. And of course, then there's uh, all sorts of cultural markers from dress to um, how close one stands to another person when talking uh, to, and so on and so forth, which homeland one remembers that one's great grandparents came from and, and so on. Some, most of these markers are weak in, in effect. Some are strong, like language is strong, religion is strong and so on. So Mill had it right. Sir Henry Parks, the father of Federation, was a fan of um, Mill. So he 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 got the idea from Mill, carried it carried it forward, uh, and as late as um, say the nineteen late nineteen sixties, when um, Bob Menzies, Prime Minister Bob Menzies, gave an interview. And this was brought up and he was accused of racism. And he said, hold on a moment. I think the white Australia policy has served us very well. well we the, don't have any conflict. The Labour opposition leader at the time, Menzies was prime minister in the 60s, Arthur Colwell also supported the, the white Australia policy. It was bipartisan up until the, the mid 1960s when Holt took over from Menzies and Whitlam took over from Colwell. Exactly. And Corwell is an interesting case in point because he he lost the leadership, I think, in uh, in the mid-60s, 65, 67, something like that. 60, uh, after the 66 loss to Holt. Yeah. Um, Corwell was Irish Catholic. So this is a really interesting case. He, he was um, very, he was proud of his Irish Catholic origins. He belonged to different Irish Catholic associations. Um, he was an Irish patriot. He believed the British should get, get the hell out because that didn't happen, had only happened in um, 1926, I think, Ireland finally got its, its, won its independence from Britain. So he was aware of that. He was immensely proud of Australia and identified with Australia, with uh, Anglo Anglo Celtic Australia as well. He did. He saw no. He saw no conflict there. The 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 conflict between Britain and Ireland was over there. It was over there in in Europe, not here in Australia. He knew there was. That Australia was an egalitarian country. He knew that, you know, and so on. So that's an interesting case in point. And I think that, uh, um, you know, he was a visionary. If one reads his book, uh, Be Just and Fear Not which I think he wrote after he'd left office in 1970, he wrote that. And he, he's so, he's such a visionary. He said, well, if, if, if our restrictive immigration policy is relaxed and we become a diverse country, which we have beyond his worst nightmares, by the way, he said very soon after that, that process begins, 
you have ethnic conflict in the form of, we know what happened, Human Rights Commission, the um, 1975 Racial Discrimination Act, 1975, uh, brought in by the Whitlam government, government. You have basically persecution of the majority ethnic group by minorities when they can, then you have bad feeling and then conflict and conflict can, can multiply. And he was he was correct. Australia is held up to be the most successful multicultural country in the world. Oh, yes, that's a talking point from liberal yeah. politicians and everybody. We're the most successful. Let's celebrate our diversity. Well, I think we've done a, a very good job. I think the Australian people are tolerant. Uh, remembering that toler, toler, to tolerate something means to suffer it. So, okay, so we so we suffer diversity. Well, I think we're uh, I, the only other country I've seen is um, at work. Well, a couple of New Zealand, Canada, and uh, Britain. I worked in 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 London for a year and. I found race relations there ex extraordinarily relaxed and, and cooperative compared to the United States where I've also worked. Um, so I think we, 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 have, we have made a good go of multiculturalism in Australia, but the fundamental conflict is unmistakable, which is that the Commonwealth suppresses the expression of white identity. Whites are the ones that are oppressed and when one does step back and takes the view of political scientist David Brown, one can see why. Well, the Commonwealth has shifted its loyalty from the majority, the founding majority, to various minorities. And if one is going to, and we know sociologically that as diversity increases, ethnic conflict also increases. We know that that's the case. Well, our historic way Australia's historic way of countering that was to only let in people who are readily assimilable and then assimilate them let them just naturally assimilate after choosing those who are readily assimilable mainly namely groups that don't really pose a threat to our identity our long-term identity anyway they learn to speak without an accent accent like you um, they identified with place, which is very important. Territory is a very important component of, of nationhood. And uh, they marry in and so on, and they, they enculturate. Our, the native, native group's um, identity is not challenged, and, and neither is that of the immigrants so much. Well, that model's gone, and it's been replaced with the multicultural model, which is you open your doors to the world, and hope for the best and diversity just increases well we have ethnic ghettos ghettos is too strong a term but i think you know what i mean if you melbourne and sydney yes concentrations. I, every it, a lot of my audience is uh, based in melbourne and sydney and there's areas which are very heavily chinese uh, vietnamese Indian uh, in Melbourne, there we we have even two Greek centres, uh, one in the north in Epping, and then one in the south in in Oakley. And so, yeah, there there are 
particularly uh, in the, the 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 far north, all the way to the 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 east and the southeast, uh, there are a lot of suburbs which it's one culture which is which is dominant. Yeah, yeah, and these people, there's nothing wrong with them. This is this is human nature. This is normal human behaviour. Self segregation to a degree. Some some people do it more than others. Of course, there's individual variation, but it's a human universal. The birds of a feather flock together. We feel we feel most comfortable living living in in suburbs where our identity predominates. That's completely normal. That's not good for a country. It's not good for, for social cohesion. It's not good for to get togetherness and keeping conflict down, but it's what humans do. Again, the founding fathers of the of, of Australian Federation were wise. They said, well, let's avoid that. Let's avoid that. Let's bring in people who readily assimilate again. But, you know, what Hawke was getting at, going back to Hawke's speech, what he was getting at is clearly false, in my view. What he was getting at was, listen, this is a no-brainer. It's bloody obvious that it's wrong for a, for a country to ever protect its identity. No country in the world, I'm generalising I'm generalizing his speech from an attack on, on Australia to a broad statement of principle, which I think, I think Hawke would have been amenable to that. He was, unlike his predecessor, he was able to think in conceptual terms. No country in the world has a right to discriminate in immigration so, so as to protect its identity. That's, that's what he was saying. In, in fact, the ruling state, the state apparatus, should act to open the borders of every country in the world so that uh, anyone can come along. Uh, any, people of any identity. I mean, you might select them on economic grounds and so on. Of course, you wouldn't want too many too many violent criminals coming in. That's that's understood. But ethnic identity, racial identity, religious identity. No, that that's wrong. And my view is the precise opposite. Um, one of probably the most one of the most grave responsibilities of a government is to is to protect its nation meaning its national identity and people get confused they think that a nation is a state no this a nation can have can try on different state apparatuses for example different ways of, of governing itself it could be a monarchy or it could be a republic uh, it might it might have one house of parliament or it might have a a bicameral parliament, you know, with a Senate and a lower house. So it, 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 it can try, it could have a large bureaucracy, it could have a small bureaucracy, it could be a welfare state, it could be a laissez-faire, you know, non-welfare state. So it could try all those things. The nation remains. The nation is the ethnic identity, the nation is the ethnic group living in its homeland. That's the core definition, there are other factors. But that's the core definition. A nation is an ethnic group living in its homeland. So um, the thing about nations are that they create a background level. It's, it's, it's mild compared to family loyalty. 
compared to perhaps religious loyalty, but it's still there. A nation coheres to something. It's a weak force, but it does cohere, while a diverse population doesn't cohere. It coheres to its parts, to its subgroups. Hence, hence the suburbs you see in Melbourne and Sydney, the, the concentrations of, of, ethnic, of eth ethnicities. Um, so th there's, it seems to me that the Commonwealth needs to be taken back by the nation. Our Commonwealth was stolen from us by the 1960s. I'm not sure how it happened. I'm not sure, sure all the forces at work, but we're facing a crisis of a stolen Commonwealth which makes us a stateless people. We are a stateless people. And in a world as savage as ours, in a world of mass migration technology, big ships and jumbo jets and all the rest of it, of superpowers such as you know, rising China, and soon after that will come India. And Indonesia is not bad either. It's a massive uh, country compared to Australia. These countries, or and the Soviet Union, not sorry, what is it now? Russia. It's become Russia. In a, such a competitive world, stateless people are defenseless. They're defenseless. They, their interests are not respected. And that's why, that's the instinctive reason why every ethnic group wants its own state. It's called nationalism. That's the core of nationalism, not some elaborate theory about this or that or it's the core is self-government nationalism is the wish of an ethnic group to rule itself and 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 so it wants to control its own state apparatus that's exactly as our forefathers felt in the six colonies let's get together we're so similar the crimson thread of kinship runs through us all we're all of british some some more scottish some more irish some more english but we're all british and beyond that, we're closely kindred peoples from Germany or from Scandinavia or from Italy or, or wherever in Europe. Let's get together and form a continental scale nation, the only country in the world with a, with a whole continent as its homeland. And um, they didn't create the Commonwealth for the Commonwealth to turn around and say, okay, so you've given birth to me. Now I'm going to basically end you. I'm going to open the borders against your will, against the popular will. I will never allow a vote on it. I'll never allow a public debate on it. And I will make sure that I swamp you over a period of 50, maybe 100 years. Anglo-Australia is heading towards minority status in its own country. And this is being done to us by the Commonwealth, that has made itself a weapon of various minorities. It's actually basically an instrument of the radical left, which has utopian goals and so on. It's actually an ideological uh, enemy that, yeah, that we awesome. face, I, I think. So I, so I think, and, and the, the conservative side of politics or the, the nationalist side of politics has failed to see what, or state what has been happening, which is, the Commonwealth was stolen from its rightful owners, those people whose ancestors created for them, by them, and it's it's been stolen and turned against them. So what is the natural thing we need to do? 
will win it back. That's the nationalist goal. The BAC takes a more indirect route. We, we say that's legitimate. If, if one wants to do it peacefully within the law, that's fine. But what we're doing is playing the multicultural game. Meanwhile, we're, we're demanding the right for Anglo-Celtic Australians to um, enter the multicultural system in Australia. That's what the that's what the British Australian community is all about. Where we we recognise that we've been massively defeated and we're being rapidly replaced in our own country. That's a that's a tragedy. But instead of whining about it, we're we're doing what we can in our own small way to play the multicultural game and saying, well, if you're going to force multiculturalism on us, then you can't exclude us. You can't exclude us from that game. We are also uh, an identity group and we have interests and we don't want to have our history falsified and we don't want to be defamed, have our children lied to in, in our own school system um, by with, with false history, black armbound history. So, I, so that's, I think, a valid approach that um, that the BAC is taking. Uh, over on Odyssey, uh, Palo Conservative Australian has sent through a three dollar uh, tip. Uh, so, asks, are you still in contact with Kevin McDonald? Do you agree with him that Jews were responsible for multiculturalism and open borders in Australia? Have you read Brenton Sanderson article on white Australia on Occidental Observer? Well, most most uh, Jews. Um, this is well known. This is just you know common knowledge in in politics. Most Jews are on the left, from the centre left through to more radical left, mostly in the centre left, and most Jews um, support liberal policies and have played a role. Um, I, I, I wouldn't concentrate on that as the major um, cause of what of what has happened. So, for in, for example, in um, our book Anglophobia that I co-authored with Harry Richardson, uh, we go through the various factions that have been promoting open borders in Australia, and the first uh, were um, after the British Empire after the actually the British Empire is put aside, which actually was a very mixed bag in, in its attitude towards white Australia. It was um, Anglo-liberals, upper, fairly upper class, actually, Anglo-liberals who began the immigration reform groups uh, called group or uh, sort of groupies, I suppose. Um, and uh, they were supported by important public intellectuals such as Donald Horn, Donald Horn, who wrote The Lucky Country. Everyone's heard of that term, The Lucky Country. It was written by him in 1956, I think, in which he attacked white Australia as being pathetic. We need to open our doors to, uh, to Asia and so on and so forth. So this was happening independently of of the Jewish community. Now, we also 
uh, and these people were cosmopolitan, so they were doctrinally opposed to nationhood or boundaries or borders, okay? Um, the same sort of ideas were promoted by, by the communists, including agents of the Soviet Union. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the, the uh, groups, immigration reform group, were communists, but just that their policies coincided with other leftists who were arguing that. Funnily enough, it also corresponded with what um, some minority, minority ethnocentrists believed. So again, in the book, we, we, we look at um, some Irish Catholics pointing out that, as I did earlier just now, that uh, many were loyal to Australia, to the Australian nation, to the British connection and so on. They saw no need to undermine Australia um, just because there, were, there had been a conflict between Britain and Ireland. Uh, so we looked at that and we, we emphasised the, um, the journalism of Greg Sheridan, for example. Greg Sheridan, I think, has changed his mind. I think he's belatedly realised that multiculturalism is a nightmare. I recently, because um, uh, he's regularly on Sky News, uh, you <clears> may <throat> want to, I'm not sure if your messenger is open on your computer, but it keeps going off. I'm not sure if you're able to, to close that. control it. Uh, but uh, he was repeating the line that Australia is one of the world's most successful multicultural countries and mentioned that uh, he that uh, his wife and children are, are non-white as well. And that's a, that's a thing that you mentioned also briefly with the, the mass mass immigration that uh, we've had, we are seeing a lot of uh, white Europeans, Anglos, uh, marrying and having children uh, with members of other races, whether they be uh, from Southeast, North Asia, the subcontinent, Middle East or Africa. And you're right in that the, the children of these of the of these uh, mix uh, the offspring of these mixed race couples they they do identify like they because they they're still our education system is is still uh, primarily um, taught in, in in English in 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 public schools most private schools have a have a Christian ethos so they are raised as australian they do speak fluent uh, fluent english like like you or me but if, if there's a if a indian australian couple have children they're obviously of indian pure uh, ethnicity and so they're going to still have that that more attachment to their the Indian heritage which is only a recent addition to Australia so can you just explain both uh, going, going forward though both both types of offspring how's that going to change uh, change or alter the the Australian uh, cultural dynamic Yeah, it's possible, you know, to um, to discover one's ethnicity. People do it all the time. So there's this phenomenon of 
of um, first generation, especially in, in this context, in present context, Islamic um, immigrants who come in, are law abiding, work hard, have children who become terrorists. Or, or to put it or more likely, uh, become alienated from the larger society and actually move, spin out of, of, of integration with the larger society. So radical so, Islam, a fundamentalist Islam. Yeah, so, so that, 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 that can happen. So the broad principle I, get, I take from that is that uh, ethnicity, ethnic identity can be discovered and that helps explain why, although people can come in, learn the language, integrate, contribute to the society, have no criminal record, have stable families, the, the next generation or the next generation can give, can, can give rise to, and often do give rise to a degree of separation, of alienation uh, from their children or, grand, or grandchildren. Now that that possibility is counteracted by assimilation. So people um, often are we still talking about uh, the parents being from the same race, ethno, religious group. The, the second one that I mentioned. Well, the, well, what I've just said applies especially to that case because the children are racially Indian or they're racially so. Uh, although they might speak with an ochre accent. Uh, they're still aware of their difference, subjectively. They think of them, they're aware of their difference. And externally, they look different, although they, speech is very important. You know, speech is important to help to overcome difference. Um, so so uh, if that process continued, uh, it, will, it will, of course, of course, change Australian identity, which whether one accepts it or not, it would, is a fact. It would change the Australian identity. Even worse than that, it would change it unevenly. So, for example, we have more of a, an Indian migration wave to Melbourne than to Sydney and more of a Chinese to Sydney than to Melbourne. There's also an east-west divide happening. So our big east coast cities are attracting most of the Asian immigrants. African as well, immigrants, uh, and they're going to the metropolitan centres. But as soon as you get out of that into country towns close to Melbourne and close to Sydney, it becomes almost like old Australia. You know, you, you could be back 50 or 80 Some years. Of those towns are changing, such as in Victoria, uh, Shepparton is a, a deemed a multicultural regional capital. Oh, it can happen, yeah, of course. But the tendency is for there to be a, a, a an abrupt, fairly abrupt east-west divide. So that, so that you have these coastal coastal cities, uh, big cities with a large large Asian populations, and then and then countryside. Maybe there are exceptions, but um, but but that but the demographers are noting that. So. Um, the demographer, I'm trying to can't remember his name, who noted this, uh, he works for the Australian Australian newspaper. Is that uh, Ad Salt? Exactly, Mr. Salt. And he pointed out, this is happening. 
you know, the Chinese emphasis to Sydney and the Indian emphasis to um, Melbourne, although there's both, there's some mixture of course going on. And he said, we're going to have, we've got these big divisions opening up, these big, the concentrations in the East, but not in the center or the West. And he said, so one effect of that is, is that our easy unity, Australia has been marked by relatively easy unity. You can travel anywhere in Australia and you're among Australians. You know, you realize it's the same country. The climate might be hotter or colder if you go from Darwin down to, to uh, Tasmania, but they're all Australians, very slight differences, only slight differences. That's going to go. Mr. Salt explained that 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 will is on the way out, and that's just the cost of the joys of multiculturalism. Well, from my point of view, it's just a cost. There are basically there are no compensations. It's just a cost. Going back to the 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 first uh, uh, the first uh, demographic changes I mentioned the 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 mixed race children where there's one white European parent and one non white European parents or I should also ask how like I'm not sure if you know the, the any statistical off the top of your head but how common is is that becoming and are you aware of uh, because in terms of those children they they because obviously they have mixed white and non-white ancestry obviously they're going to to look different uh but uh, they do have that uh, in one parent that white european and ancestry history there mm. yeah that's a fact um i'm not aware of the of, of the figures i'm not aware of the figures one thing uh, uh, that is extraordinary i've just been corresponding with a demographer a colleague and i was asking what uh, what 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 is the birth rate of Anglo-Celtic Australians? There's no established data on that, as far as I can, uh, I'm, I'm told by the demographer. No known figures on that. Intermarriage rates. I, I suspect there are um, studies that have been done, but uh, no, I'm not aware of the figures. But you know, if if the immigration had been moderate, this could all be solved by by assimilation. Because if you take you take that mixed couple with mixed cup mixed background children resulting, so those children are half Asian. Say so we're talking about one of the Asian countries, or or an African or an African country. So the children are half white. If they then marry also into the white majority, because in this futurology, uh, uh, imaginary case, I'm assuming that that whites remain the overwhelming majority of the country. Um, so then imagine they marry. Well, then their children are a quarter white, uh, are a, a quarter non-white and becoming indistinguishable. Not quite, maybe, not quite. Depends on the genetic different distance between the, 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 the different groups. But then one more generation, one eighth, basically unrecognisable problem solving itself what is the problem conflict alienation and conflict most of the conflict is is political i don't mean civil war i mean political conflict where you have people feeling uh bitter about ethnic stratification that's that's one 
terrible cost that diverse countries almost all pay, which is, oh, excuse me, stratification um, by ethnic group, which is just absolutely unacceptable. It's a terrible price to pay for, for the scant uh, benefits of, of diversity. People feel resentful when, when their group uh, they perceive their group as being not as high status as others. And especially if this continues for some generations, which, which can happen when you have low rates of assimilation. Low rates of intermarriage can result in, for example, the black, black population in America has low rates of intermarriage. I think it's 3% of marriages per year uh, between black and white. So the two groups are very stable. So it's a multi-generational problem. And the black resentment uh, is tremendous. And the feeling that they've been badly done by and so on. And of course, the commensurate uh, white guilt. Because, because, in, in, because this, this situation is complicated by race hustlers who are telling both parties, well, you should be guilty and you should be angry. This, this is another uh, uh, another aspect that uh, the, the it's it's been a, a thing for for many centuries. White man's burden. It's our responsibility to take care of these downtrodden. Uh, different uh, groups and cultures and uh, uh, help them up to to do better and that's one of the reasons why some believe that uh, that uh, I, that whites are responsible for their own downfall another another argument that's made uh, that whites are responsible for the downfall of their own societies is because it's an individualistic culture where most of the other cultures on the world in the world are collectivists. I mean, and uh, mass the the mass migration, various uh, ethnic ethnic culture, racial groups that that come here, they still practice their their collectivism in their community within their own suburb. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I think I think that's that that's true. There's a lot. It's the blame game, isn't it? There's a lot of blaming going on, and some are accusing whites of of having too much agency and using that agency uh, for bad purposes. By the way, that that view is a racist view itself. Um, one, but one one thing that shifted is a hundred years ago to be European was to be part of, a, of an ex, still expanding civilization um, 110 years ago, World War, the First World War War. First World War had not been fought, which, which crippled, did tremendous damage. There was tremendous self-confidence. Um, people around the world realized that, that this was a phenomenon of a 400 year long expansion of this small, relatively small peninsula called Europe. Uh, the, the Industrial Revolution invented there, globalism invented by the British Empire, global, global trading networks uh, de developed by these various empires, European empires. 
a tremendous self-confidence, a self-confidence in their Christianity. Um, it was a, it's, it's a, a world-changing phenomenon, the Western expansion from the Renaissance, you know, on. Um, and it began internally, began internally, artistically and commercially and intellectually. But then it became a world-changing event. We are now much further down the track. We're now at the tail end. I, ho I hope not, but I fear we're at the tail end of the ending of the West. That some some of the things that made us really strong, like individualism, individual freedom of expression, which had to be fought for in our own countries too, in Britain and Europe. Um, uh, constitutional rule, uh, all these imponderables, non-material benefits that we had, um, has been a phenomenon. That's but that's well well behind us now. Now we have a loss of confidence. We have uh, a separation of our elites from from our various nations. Most, most Western nations do not have elites that are loyal to the founding nation. So that's an extraordinary thing. And um, we need to be teaching our young people about our glorious past, tremendous challenges, terrible things, terrible wars, but also amazing achievements that, that uh, our ancestors did, made, and that, and that we're we're worth continuing, that their, their people are worth continuing and not being ended in their own countries. Of course, uh, today in Australia, uh, young white people uh, are taught the, the black arm band view of Australian history, a coin termed by uh, historian Geoffrey Blaney in the, the 1980s and his books on Australian history are, are glorious and we see it reflected in well all the the, the left-wing parties that it's it, it always comes around every Australian day they declare that it's in invasion day the labor governments they enable this undermining and I know that uh, uh, British Australian, community on its YouTube channel uh, put out a, a vision of genuine reconciliation. We talked about race mixing before. The 3% of uh, Australians who identify as having Indigenous Australian ancestry, that has been going on uh, since uh, British settlement began. Uh, though we are seeing that uh, a lot of of those who have mixed in indigenous and non-indigenous uh, ancestry, uh, they are some of the most vocal uh, anti-whites, anti-Australian. Now, yeah, the videos that uh, British Australian community put out uh, a vision of genuine uh, reconciliation. In my opinion, reconciliation, it's designed never to happen as uh, just so these the, uh, the 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 people who benefit from all the the money and the gravy train 
and uh, this continuing division uh, can uh, con continue to uh, get all of these uh, uh, all of this money and these uh, elite uh, positions and is actually seeing the the fracturing of Australia with another historian uh, Keith Winshuttle calls the the great Australian giveaway which Paul Keating started with native title so I'd say we're as far away from genuine reconciliation, if that even is a term, as possible. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, it's it's remarkable, isn't it, that uh, um, the referendum last year was defeated despite huge resources, an imbalance of resources in favour of the yes campaign. So I was uh, very happy to see to see the uh, referendum defeated. And it was conducted in the name of reconciliation. That is really a lie and is really a lie. Reconciliation is where two parties that have been in conflict, legal conflict, commercial conflict, emotional, family conflict, get together and talk and make compromises. Uh, they, they admit where they've made errors, it's a reciprocal relationship. It's not one party saying, submit. That's not called reconciliation. That's called victory. That's, that's, what, called the victory. Voice, that's what the voice uh, voice was and what all of these First Peoples Assembly uh, with regards to treaty, it's all a one-sided negotiation. Yeah. Uh, all of these First Peoples Assembly, oh, we're demanding it all on our terms, not on white terms, which they're supposed to be the, the other... The other party there's no one representing exactly. Exactly. there's no uh anglo-australian uh assemblies to negotiate on anglo-australians behalf anglos anglo-celtic australians were systematically and 100 percent excluded from the referendum process it's it's an outrage and i i take that back by the way that analysis back to uh, 2013, when um, the when the Labor Party in office initiated the f first attempt to have a referendum, this, and, and that was for constitutional recognition. And if one break, one looks at the expert panel put together uh, by the government, there's not one Anglo-Celtic representative. There are minorities represented. There are, of course, average, different Aboriginal peoples represented, as they should have been, of course. There were several white people, all activists not just, or, or, or advocates for Aboriginal rights for the Aboriginal, from the Aboriginal point of view, but not one person saying, well, hold on, I'm here to represent the interests of the nation, of the nation. And at the core of which is Anglo-Australia, Anglo-Celtic Australia, not one. So as a result of that, and no one even noticed, no one even cared. And this includes liberal prime ministers. This includes the National Party. No one said, oh, what about us, by the way? This is meant to be about reconciliation, isn't it? About, uh, you know, it's meant to be a reciprocal thing, isn't it? Then we also have some complaints. So notice, 
in the newspapers and commentary and so on, no one's been talking about um, Aborigines apologising to white Australia, or I mean to or to 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 other citizens. No one, no one's been saying, well, why don't we have Aboriginal leaders saying sorry for the things that their people have done wrong? I don't mean in general. I mean for specific wrongs, like huge crime levels, like incredibly disgusting levels of family violence, which gives Australia a bad name, which around the world, but which are bad in their own right, of course, about the huge costs. We're pouring money in to this. And what, what thanks do we get? Oh, we want our own state. We want treaties. We want, we want, we want, we want. Well, we also want. We also exist. And we, and we are the, mainly the taxpayers who are paying for all this. And we have to live in country towns where, where we have to be careful. We can't go there. We can't go here. There's pilfering, there's huge drug use and petty theft. What about starting with an apology from Aboriginal leaders where appropriate, not, not everywhere necessarily, but where these problems are at epidemic proportions? What, how about starting off with, with a good conscience cleansing, sorry, we're really sorry, we can't control our kids. Sorry about that. If our Prime Minister, Rudd, can say sorry, can apologise on behalf of Australians, the overwhelming majority of whom have done nothing wrong to Aborigines, right? If, if, if that can happen, then why not in the other direction? That would, that, that would be a cleansing moment. That would be, that would be a moral moment. That, that would be the basis of a conversation. Okay, let's sit down and talk about what we can do for each other. So what do you want? Oh, you want the medical, a special medical assistance. And there are special medical needs for, for evolutionary reasons, by the way, for, for obvious evolutionary reasons like refined carbohydrates are killing Aborigines. Alcohol is killing Aborigines. None of this would come to a surprise to any uh, leader, Aboriginal leader who knows about this. But the reasons are evolutionary, but that doesn't mean that they, those problems go away. It just means that this will be a long-term commitment by the nation, and I think most Australians are willing to do that. What else do you need? Well, okay, problems um, because you want to live in your in your country. We understand that there's a strong bond, especially among traditional Aborigines, with their with their homelands, that of which there are 500 in Australia. Originally, there were 500. There was no Aboriginal nation. There were um, hunter-gatherer groups living in intimate relationship with their uh, environments surviving doing a fantastic job surviving really impressive so okay so you can't get a job because of that we'll help we understand we we're, we're sympathetic and then what what else what else oh, you would like your languages preserved okay we're, we're sympathetic to that and on and on you know sometimes more sympathetic than others i'm sure you want Oh, you want political independence and a treaty? No. You want to be able to uh, have your own state? No. No. Sorry. Actually, we're not very sorry. Just no. 
Uh, and then at the end of it, we would say, okay, now it's our turn. Now sit down. Here's, here's what we want. We want the family violence to end. We want the glue sniffing to end. We want the rampant abuse and neglect of children, three-year-olds, five-year-olds running around the towns at midnight with their parents oblivious in, in, the, in the house, partly because they're, they're and also avoiding violence from the, from the father. We want that to end and we're willing to pay for it. We're willing to do what we can. We want your cooperation beginning with an admission, yes, it is a problem. We have problems also to solve. So that will be genuine reconciliation. And we're just hearing, we're hearing nothing of it. The closest we hear comes from, from Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine, for example, two, two Aboriginal spokes, spokesmen that I really respect. I'm not saying that is their view, but they, they, they're at least in that, getting in that direction of honesty, and openness. Yusinda Price calls herself, I think, uh, a, an Aboriginal Celtic person. So she refers to both sides of her, of her ancestry. And so does, uh, I've had him on my show, Dr. Anthony Dillon, who was also uh, another prominent uh, <clears throat> advocate with Indigenous ancestry. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we need some truth telling. That's another thing we hear again and again from, from the Uluru statement. Truth-telling, Makarata, okay? All for it, all for it. Let's have the truth on both sides. The things we, our ancestors, because it's not us who did wrong, it's our ancestors. The things our, our ancestors did wrong and, and your ancestors did wrong. Because the history is, it, it's taught that it's, the, the 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 cartoonish good and evil that they, the the British came here and just massacred uh, the indigenous tribes in various frontier wars. That's that that's the the the, the black and white history part in the pun that's that's taught where it it's much more complex nuance there there uh, there were periods of uh peace and trade and then there were uh, dis uh disputes and the aggression uh wasn't started exclusively on one side or the other yes correct correct and also the part of this um simplistic black armband history excuse the pun is again is um that 26th of January is Invasion Day. We, we should feel bad. We, uh, white Australians, should feel bad about this because we took away their country and so on. When I look at that, when I review the history leading up to 1788, the First Fleet, and I review, review the history, again, I, I can't help coming to the conclusion that Aborigines did about as well as could be expected. In fact, they did far better than could have happened. Look, in in by the mid 18th century, say by 1750, the world was a shark tank. Two uh, two or three days after the first fleet arrived on 26 January, a French fleet arrived, sniffing around, 
oh, we're on a scientific expedition. La Perouse was the captain, the captain of that, the commander of that. And we have a beach in Sydney named after La Perouse. He then went, went missing. Um, we had already centuries of colonization behind us. We, I mean, Europe, the Portuguese, Spanish, they discovered the Americans, the Americas. Um, then we had uh, extraordinary little Holland, little Holland became a world ex exploration giant. Parts of Australia were discovered by the Dutch. Uh, Tasmania was first mapped by a Dutch explorer, Van Diemen, hence it was called Van Diemen's Land, and so on and so forth. The world was already a shark tank. All these patrolling, exploring, acquisitive, uh, assertive uh, empires, building all the countries, building their empire. The Russians were building the largest land empire in the world by right across Eurasia, right across the north of Eurasia. And they had a navy. They had a navy soon after that. So there was a clash between the expanding Russian Empire and the expanding British Empire. And that's why Fort Denison was constructed in the middle of Sydney Harbour with cannon aimed at the heads. It was against the perceived risk of a Russian invasion of Australia. So then, 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 then I play, then I run a mental experiment. Okay, so imagine if Australia had not been colonised by the British since from 1788. How, how would Aborigines have resisted any of these forces? They couldn't have resisted any of them. They would have been open pickings. And why not Java? Java was a seagoing country. It did, had, had a trade network with India, hence Indonesia. There's a historical connection. Um, Around 1600, I might be wrong, might be 1500, a major fleet left China and explored part, parts of East Africa and so on. Um, so China was certainly capable of having ocean-going ocean junks. Um, and we're told, oh, you shouldn't have invaded us. You shouldn't have come because we, we, we could have had our own country. It takes millennia after the introduction of agriculture for a country to grow, it has to grow 100 fold in population, right? So when a, a culture goes from hunter-gatherer hunter -gatherer, uh, means of, uh, of ex existence to farming or to herding, it takes about, the population increases 100 fold. That can take certainly many centuries, if not millennia, then there's cultural evolution, political systems, the unification. Uh, it, there's no way that Australia would have been ever in a position to defend itself from these marauding um, sharks setting up their, you know, their, um, their empires around the world. They struck it lucky when they were annexed, when they were colonised by Great Britain. They struck it lucky. The, the country with the most advanced uh, liberal politics, I'm not saying it was liberal, I'm just saying that, that that strand of its politics was the most advanced. 
Um, it had just begun the Industrial Revolution from about 1750, so it was about 30, 40 years into the Industrial Revolution, which meant a cornucopia of wealth, un, unknown until, until then. So, and also Australia and its inhabitants were brought into contact with the only form of global trade, which was via European empires, especially the British Empire. So globalism, in the sense of trade, of global trade, was invented by the by the British Empire. They were brought in, they were brought into that, and brought in democratically. They were voting in most states of Australia by the mid uh, mid nineteenth century. It's it, and, and we're told, oh no, no, you you. Australians should feel guilty about this. We should feel pride, immense pride, that we colonised a continent on the other side of the world, never been done before. I can't think, I, I don't think it had ever been done before. Something as extraordinary as that, what an, what an achievement. All in all, Aboriginal Australians hit the jackpot. Of course, there was suffering, I'm not saying it was a utopia, but it was a the best outcome that I can imagine. Unfortunately, we don't get uh, get this this history in schools anymore. I, even thirty years ago, uh, I was taught what well, the achievements of uh, British settlement, but also I the Indigenous Dreamtime culture as well. We were we were basically taught both. The, uh, and and obvi obviously it was taught that Australia was settled and founded by the uh, the British uh, Anglo Anglo Celtic people. Um, it's been great to chat with you tonight, Frank. We've we've chatted a, a off and off over the years, but it's been great to to, to have a chat uh, on air with you and the British Australian. A community is well. It's a, it's a social uh, presence is is really uh, hitting hitting the mark. Uh, so, uh, the the professional videos that you've 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 got, uh, they includes a a two two part uh, on Anglo phobia. Well, it's actually four part uh, that goes through the the various uh, various and, and more and more are coming too. And uh, so the videos are there. Um, if you want to get your hands on the the full uh, text, uh, so the the website is anglophobia uh, org, which redirects to British Australian Community Anglophobia, and you can get it from Amazon. I if I click on this this link, yeah, Amazon uh, Amazon Australia is the uh, the the easiest place to get it, and your uh, Magnus uh, Opius on uh, evolutionary human biology on uh, genetic interests also available on on Amazon. So that is much more heavy reading. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> But if you really want to get 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 to know where the where Frank's uh, coming from, a 
because it's is is studied study studied and and practiced this uh, his whole life and uh, so uh, BritishAustralianCommunity.com.au and uh, so uh, they you're a proper organisation with a, a constitution and and membership exactly and membership is cheap at twenty five dollars um, it's membership is automatic and uh, we'd love to have you on board we need people with skills uh well such as yours tim we need people with uh, computer skills internet skills uh well i I said to you at the beginning i'm german australian so is there like do you have to be an anglo australian to to join i'm well I, i when i when i asked that i just is it even legal to have that membership requirement? Well, we would never, we would never break the law. Of course, the law is yeah. very important. Uh, no, membership is open, and uh, um, but we're just talking about the spirit in which we would welcome you. Um, of course, people from ancestors from Europe, um, we consider kindred peoples, and. Um, you know, uh, there's there's one closing point on 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 that. Um, we were discussing. You asked me about about the situation of people, hybrids, people of of you know, partly white, partly non-white background. Uh, an important factor there is foreground identity versus background identity. So in the current climate where whites are being set upon by the media and by the education systems and by Hollywood and so on, um, some people want to identify as Aboriginal or as Asian or as African and ignoring their their Anglo grandparents. Um, I think what's going to happen in the future is pe- people are going to begin discovering, rediscovering their Anglo ancestors and when they do that, they'll start to think of themselves more, more consciously, more times every day, as an Anglo-Celt or as a white Australian. And so know, their loyalties will yeah. shift. It, uh, I'm not sure if you've met uh, Josh Howe. So he's half uh, Anglo-Australian and half uh, Sri Lankan, but he's part of the uh, Australia First uh, Roifa movement in australia obviously a him being a a christian uh, makes him identify more with his uh, anglo side as well but i just thought that i'd uh, thrown a a real life example of well, well that that is an example so there we have josh um josh could could think of himself as sri lankan or he could think of himself as white or both hopefully both hopefully he's realistic um but you know, when 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 Jacinta Price calls herself an Aboriginal Celtic woman, I mean that is just r- real, and it shows that she's not pretending that she's only Aboriginal of Aboriginal descent. Now the 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 cosmopolitan left, their view on this is too often, I think, um, plays plays the uh, the the guilt game, and they think people should people they expect people of mixed ancestry to identify with the victimhood side with the victim side of their ancestors 
and to somehow ignore the conqueror, the, the perpetrator. Oh, so they, they believe that Europeans have no real culture. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. They, they play many, many, many tricks. But one of them is to pretend that <clears throat> somehow if one has, if, if one half, if, if a half of one's ancestry are victims, one should focus on that. Why? Why not, why not celebrate also the winners? Why only the losers, if one has to look at it that way? Oh, well, that's also follow the money as well, whereas the, there's more money these days in uh, being a victim. Exactly, exactly. Very, very well said. Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. <clears throat> Frank Salter, uh, for your time tonight. It's been it's been great to to chat chat with you, and uh, you've had also other recent uh, Australian media appearances over on the the Backbench Drivers podcast. There's there's two of them now, and so, like I said, the British Australian uh, community, uh, the word is is spreading. So, thank you for your time. Tim, thank you very much for a fine interview. Take care. All the best. All right, everybody. That is Wilmsfront for this program, but I will be back on Tuesday evening. Uh, so there won't be a theorist show. There will be a, another Wilmsfront at 9 p.m. Melbourne time on the Wilmsfront channels uh, with another guest, uh, David Clues from the Unity News Network over in Glasgow in the UK. Uh, so Unity News Network is an actual free speech nationalist news network, not like the fake ones, GB News and Talk TV and Spiked and Unheard and Trigonometry. So I'll be looking forward to some frank uh, discussions about uh, the state of, of Britain in election year. Uh, Tim's News Explosion will be on tomorrow night as usual, 9pm Melbourne time on the Wilmsfront channels. Uh, there'll be more reports from Richard Wollstonecroft. I'll be recording fresh ones uh, later this week. Remember, the Unshackled Productions archive now is over on Substack. Uh, so I'll put the link into it there. And you can also support the work of the Unshackled through a Substack a subscription, $5 per month, $50 per month. And uh, we still have our Unshackled membership options, which is $5 per month, silver $10 per month, gold $25 per month, and platinum $50 per month. Uh, so, And also I should thank... Uh, Halo Conservative uh, Australian uh, for tonight's uh, tip over on Odyssey, uh, where your name is still open borders uh, for Israel. <laughs> You've had various names over the years, but uh, I know uh, <laughs> I know which worked out which ones uh, are you on the various uh, platforms. Uh, so yes, I. I've quoted Unity News Network on uh, a couple of shows now. Uh, so, yes, uh, David Clues is uh, weekly live streams, which are on Tuesday evenings UK time. So he'll be joining me UK morning time. So I'm looking, as I said, looking forward to an actual uh, discussion, not a, a prosciutto, uh, <laughs> a, a prosciutto uh, 
discussion like you see on talk TV with uh, Douglas Murray or Constantine Kisson, you know, all those uh, people who uh, believe that uh, anyone uh, to the right of uh, anyone from Tommy Robinson uh, (laughs) right onwards is uh, far right. Pale Conservative Strand says, are you burying your website, Tim? Still publishing on the website. Uh, over on a, the theunshackled.net, I still post uh, my the reality talk radio uh, segments. Uh, so I'm on every Tuesday morning uh, with uh, uh, Paul Brennan's breakfast program and uh, Dewey DeBoer. He is just uh, his uh, show, the, the Dialogue. Uh, that is being well received, and he had uh, Austrian identitarian Martin uh, Selner on his show on Friday, which was an excellent uh, guest get, and uh, it triggered uh, the the usual uh, uh, anti hate groups in New Zealand writing up about <laughs> writing about Reality Check Radio and and him, which it's always good when your enemies give you a a shout out. Uh, so. It'll be on Tuesday at 9 p.m. Melbourne time. I'll be chatting with with David Clue. So there'll be no theorists uh, this week, an extra Wilms front uh, in in uh, in place of that. Yes, uh, Constantine is coming to Australia, guest of the Institute of Public Affairs, which uh, I feel vindicated by not uh, renewing my membership back in, in 2017 if they're going to invite uh, somebody like him. Uh, he criticized that uh, that uh, conservative MP who uh, said the truth about uh, London and Sadiq Khan his name's just uh, just escaped me uh, just escaped me currently uh, put it in the the comments uh, uh, comments if you remember that conservative MP has been suspended for telling the truth about uh, about Sadiq Khan I'll talk a bit of British news tomorrow night on Tim's news explosion but it'll primarily be about uh, uh, tomorrow on Tuesday, uh, British politics. Uh, so, uh, Brucey says, shout out to Endeavour News for Kiwi Nationalist podcast on YouTube. I haven't checked them out, uh, but I definitely uh, should. Will uh, so good night. I'll all you. I'll see you all back 9 p.m. tomorrow night for another epic Tim's News explosion. Uh, remember to follow mine and the Unshackled social media on telegram gab twitter x and also facebook and of course we had the backups on rumble and odyssey in case things a end on youtube good night everybody and thank you for your viewership and support broadcasting from the unshackled studios in melbourne this is wilms front Brought to you by theunshackled.net. Now here's Tim Wills.